We've been taking this summer-long journey through the fruit of the Spirit and analyzing or attempting to understand what each fruit is and what keeps us from it, what moves us towards it. And this morning, we are going to discuss the topic of peace. What is peace? What keeps us from peace? What does peace look like? And then uh, how, how do we have more peace? How do we manifest more peace in our life? So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Galatians chapter 5. That's uh, our text for this whole series. Uh, if not, it will be up on the stream before you. This is what Paul writes to the church at Galatia. Uh, chapter 5, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. The Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you, not, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace. It's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. The Word of God for the people of God. Do you remember that song? I don't even know. It's, I imagine it's from the late 70s, maybe early 80s. I don't know. It's by a band named Boston, right? It's one of those great, like, driving with the windows down, cruising kind of songs. It's called More Than a Feeling. Do you remember that song? Yeah. So keep that song in the back of your mind as I tell you that peace is more than a feeling, right? For many of us... When we think of the concept of peace, we contain it and compartmentalize it solely into a feeling. And what I want to tell you is that while peace can produce certain feelings, it is not a feeling. We have wrongly labeled it that way, and the scriptures will help us understand that peace is actually something a little more tangible than a feeling. Now, it's less tangible than something standing right in front of you, but peace, at its core, is origined from God. So in the same way that we say that God is love, we can also rightly say that God is peace. If you want to know what peace looks like, think about the character of God. Peace comes from God, and I would say to you that the experience of peace that you have is actually the presence of God with you. Does it make sense? And so we have a sense of peace sometimes, but that results 
from the circumstances around us, whether we are experiencing the presence of God or not, or perhaps some substitute idea or reality of peace. Actually, what the Bible will tell us about peace is that peace is something that is given and received more than experienced. That peace is something that is given and received, ultimately meant to be given by God, received by us, so that we can then offer it to the world. We are conduits, not containers, the language we've been talking about an awful lot here. So with that kind of backdrop set to this idea of peace, let's attempt to understand it even a little bit deeper. You remember that this book is a, is a letter, right? It's not an encyclopedia. It's not a fact book. It's a letter written to a church, a uh, church in, in uh, the, the area of Galatia in modern-day Turkey. It was written to them for particular reasons. They were struggling with strife within their church. There were some people who said, you have to do these things in order to be a Christian. And there were other people who said, no, you don't. You just need Jesus. And Paul was rightly siding with the you-just-need-Jesus people against all the people who were trying to add religious laws to them. That's why this word law shows up in this passage so much, and it seems so odd to us. If you, if you live by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Does that make sense? But Paul's talking about identity here, right? Who, what matters is who you are. Are you a law follower? That's not good enough. Are you a person of the Spirit because you're joined to Jesus? That's all that matters. It does not mean if you're a person of the Spirit that you don't do the right things because <laughs> that's what the Spirit manifests in us. Does this make sense? Now, this becomes really important because this idea of peace actually is rooted in this bigger concept. And for us to understand it, we have to think how Paul would have thought for just a minute. So Paul uh, was a Jewish lawyer, right? He would call himself a Pharisee. That meant he was a, a, a well-educated teacher of the Old Testament. He knew it forward and backwards. He knew what the words meant. He knew what he was supposed to do by it. And therefore, his understanding of peace is always going to come out of this Jewish reality of peace. So we can't understand peace in the New Testament, not only because of Paul, but all the New Testament writers, unless we understand the Jewish concept of peace. Now, for you and I, if we were to try to write a simple definition of peace, we might write something like this. Uh, the absence of conflict, right? Uh, or I'm in my happy place. How many of you are peaceful when you're sitting on the beach and the waves are crashing? Not me. That's where I was all last week. There's no peace there. <laughs> but that's not the Jewish concept of peace. The Jewish word for peace is the word shalom. Uh, and the Jewish people will speak that to each other to this point because it's transactional, right? So it's something that you give and receive. It's not something that you experience. And what they're actually proclaiming is, uh, may the world be as it should be. Does it make sense? The idea of peace is the idea of everything being in its right place, in its right order, functioning as it's supposed to function. Or perhaps we'd say it this way, if you want to be theological, that it's a world full of righteousness. You say, well, what does the word righteousness mean? Well, it's actually an easy word to define, right? The, the suffix O-U-S means full of, full of right, right? 
Imagine if everything was just right. Do you imagine our world like that? Like, our world is so far from that that it's almost impossible for us to even conjure up an imagination of what it's like. Unless you read the first couple of chapters of the Old Testament. Because there was a time in this world when there was true shalom. It's the creation account. And so for any Jewish person, when they're speaking shalom to someone else, they're saying, may your experience of life be like Genesis 1 and 2. You see it? Where God dwells with you and walks with you. There's no separation. Where all of of creation is functioning in perfect harmony with each other. There is no violence from man to man, woman to woman, man to woman, woman to man, or, or humanity towards creation itself. And, oh, by the way, what enables this kind of shalom? The perfect and unobjected to rule of God. When does shalom start to go awry? When humanity says, oh, by the way, what if I had some power? What if I started to rule things? What if I was like God instead of an image bearer of God? So, Shalom has this idea of everything being perfectly right. It is cosmic. It is not just an individual experience, though there certainly are individual realities. And then you have the Apostle Paul being the most prolific writer of the concept of peace in the New Testament, though he bases it on Jesus. We'll talk about that in just a second. And almost all of the time, I would argue all of the time, when Paul is using the word peace in the New Testament, he's doing one of two things and likely both of them. One, pointing us back to creation, the world as it was supposed to be. Or two, ultimately pointing us to new creation, the world as it will be once again, when shalom is there. And Paul tells us, as the same way he told the church at Galatia, we live in this weird in-between time right now. They did then, we do now, right? We've got this big black line at center court here. And I've got one foot on one side and one foot on the other side. It's perfect imagery. I've got one foot in shalom and one foot in non-shalom, right? It, we call this the already not yet experience of new creation. That we are new. If we're in Christ, we're new. Shalom is ours. But we're still in this broken world and we experience all the chaos and brokenness of it. Does this make sense? So when Paul brings this up in this list of fruit of the Spirit, that's what he's talking about. When he says peace, he's talking about what would the world look like if God was in charge and, was, and his rule was unobjected to? Well, I can tell you what it would look like. Everything would be functioning in perfect harmony and union just as it was intended to. But it's more than that. Oh, by the way, because of Jesus, what Jesus has done on the cross, defeating sin and death, which brings disharmony, and then rising again from the dead and calling people into it, that's new creation. That shalom is once again relaunched. That's why Jesus, after he uh, is raised from the dead, does some weird things. If you remember, he goes to his disciples and he breathes on them. Remember this weird stuff? But that's what God did in the garden. Do you remember in Genesis 1 and 2? That's how God brought life. He breathed into the nostrils of mankind. And then he says to them, peace be with you. Right? He's not saying, hey guys, here I am. He's saying, shalom. Right? Here it is. It's restored. New creation is here. And so when Paul brings up this word, this is what he means. He doesn't just mean, I hope you have a really easy day, right? Or I hope that in the midst of chaos, you can find some balance. Now, how do you find balance in the midst of chaos? 
if you experience that kind of peace. Does, does it make sense? So for many of us, our attempts to get peace are fleeting because we're trying to grab onto something intangible when God says, I'm peace. If you would submit to my rule, you would enter into my shalom and you would experience peace. Imperfectly in this broken world, but more and more, the more and more you bow the knee to God and submit to him and retake your rightful place as a worshiper, not one to be worshipped. Make sense? This is what Paul's talking about when he brings up the word peace. Now, I have to pause and say one more thing before we move on. Peace is not a feeling, but it is a fruit. So remember the context here of the fruit of the Spirit. This becomes super important for us. That is, uh, if you've ever seen a tree that produces fruit before, several things of this tree are true, right? So long as it's healthy and not a cartoon. (laughs) The first is that it produces a singular fruit. We've talked about that before. This fruit is love, right? The second, of the, the second thing that's true of a fruit tree is it does not produce its fruit for itself. What does the fruit of a tree accomplish? Two main things, right? It enables itself to be reproduced because if the fruit bears the seed that reproduces itself, so there's more and more and more. The second is that it nourishes creation. It's the whole part of the fruit tree. That's that's the part that the fruit tree plays in the betterment of creation. Now, Paul has likened us to fruit trees. This is really important. Because all of these fruits, oh, by the way, are not for (laughs) self-consumption. So when Paul says, you'll manifest peace, that doesn't mean, oh, good. (laughs) When I'm in the hard times, it'll be less hard. That's true, but that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, what if you actually brought peace to someone else? You see it? This is what he's talking about here. What would it mean for you to nourish those around you through peace? And oh, by the way, if you were manifesting so much peace that it was affecting others, it actually might reproduce yourself. See it? This is what we're talking about when we talk about fruit. So that puts peace in the context for us, hopefully. Let's talk about what peace looks like when we see it, right? When peace is growing on the, the tree that the, that the Spirit is manifesting in you or in the church, uh, what does it look like? And Paul would point, uh, Paul in the New Testament would point to two things. Now, obviously, this is a gross oversimplification, but I've got like 35 minutes with you this morning, so we could go on and on and on. So don't go home and, well, please do go home and read and find other things, but don't chastise me when you find other things. These two things are the main thing, the main manifestation of the fruit of peace in the church, right? The first is what Jesus calls being a peacemaker. So in Matthew chapter 5, I think we've got this verse for the screen. Matthew chapter 5, in the middle of what was called the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, when you hear the word peacemaker, my guess is your first inclination is to mistake it for peacekeeper. Because that's my first inclination. Jesus is not asking for peacekeepers here. okay? Because Jesus, in many ways, through the gospel, is far far from a peacekeeper. He's going to bring some level of chaos into the world in order to deal with the ultimate chaos of sin and death. 
In the same way, Jesus is going to say some hard things to some people, isn't he? He's not going to just keep the peace so that this ministry thing goes well for him. Love sometimes means saying a hard thing to someone, though there is a way to say a hard thing to someone. Jesus is not calling us to be peacekeepers here. He's calling us to be peacemakers. This is really important. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about new creation before new creation language even begins to come off the lips of the New Testament writers. But here's where it comes from. See it. He's saying, what if my disciples became propagators of Genesis 1 and 2 in this world? What if they became places where my, people who through my rule were actually demonstrating what it looked like to an onlooking world? Uh, it's what Leslie Newbegin, one of, one of my favorite missiologists or, or theologians, says. It's, it's what it means to be a sign or a symbol of the coming kingdom of God. Does this make sense? So Jesus has brought new shalom. He's bringing new shalom. He's saying to his disciples, blessed are the ones who are going to take this truth and run with it and enact it in the world, not just keep it for themselves. Does this make sense? People who actually go and make peace. How do you do that? Well, there's so many different ways, aren't there? First and foremost, by telling the gospel to other people so they understand that peace can only come from the rule of God in our lives. That God is good. He's not out to make life miserable. He's not a cosmic cop who's out to punish us for all of our misdeeds. Rather, he's meant to show us what it actually means to be human. So in that purpose, we can reconnect to who we actually are and find peace, inner peace that we could never have otherwise. See that? It's a peacemaker when you're sharing that message with other people. But in the same way, it's being people who promote harmony in our world. Harmony between humanity and God. Harmony between humanity and creation. And harmony between humanity and humanity. <laughs> right? You're saying, does that look political sometimes? I don't think so. It might make you vote one way or the other on some issues. I don't know. But it means believing in the dignity of all humanity in such a powerful way that we actually treat people well. Imagine that, right? And then so doing, we're reminding people, this is actually what it means to be human, to live like this, not like that. And we're saying to people, you don't have to live in this broken world like that. There's actually another way that leads to fullness of life. That's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. Now, if you keep reading in the Beatitudes, the very next Beatitude, he says, are blessed are those who are persecuted in my name. It's not a coincidence that that one follows this one. Because when you live counterculturally like that, you're going to take a little bit of heat, aren't you? In fact, when you live counterculturally in any of the Beatitudes, you're going to take a little bit of heat. Because that's not how our world is aligned or organized. So what's the first way that we see the manifestation of the fruit of peace through the church or through us individually? I would say it's externally to the world. By promoting the gospel and by putting on display what this kingdom of God actually looks like instead of just talking about it hypothetically and asking people to believe us. Does that make sense? 
Like, what if we actually did some of the things we told people the gospel would result in? Wouldn't they then be more inclined to believe the gospel was true if they saw the transformation in us? This is what Jesus is talking about. But it's not just external to the world, it's also internal to the church. (laughs) And here's where it gets a little tense, doesn't it? Because Christians are nasty to each other sometimes. Man, is that awful. But the greatest manifestation of the fruit of peace internally in the church, I think, is defined by the word unity. And Paul is passionate about unity. talks about it in every single one of his letters. That that means that no matter what the issue is in the church that's causing him to write them a letter, it has something to do with unity. Because that's always up for grabs, it seems, in the church, doesn't it? And Paul's saying, listen, if we're called to live in harmony with one another, what would it mean if the church actually did it? And how would that impact the world? Imagine if each of us was nourished by the fruit we were providing to each other that looked like true biblical unity. You say, what does that look like? Well, let me give you an example. Believe it or not, the church in the pages of the New Testament was radically diverse. Radically diverse. We talk about diversity in the church now. We have no idea. In the pages of the New Testament, the church is radically diverse. It was diverse socioeconomically. You had incredibly wealthy people, and you had some of the poorest people on earth. And somehow, they got along. It was radically diverse politically. You had people within the administration of the Roman oppression. And you had zealots who had given their whole life to overthrowing Roman oppression. And now, they're sitting next to each other in the pews of the early church. They didn't have pews, thank God. They didn't have pews. But it's not just politically, it's not just socioeconomically, it's also ethnically radically diverse. Ethnic diversity is one of the major issues of the New Testament because Jews and Gentiles, they just can't seem to get get along for any rhyme or reason. And Paul's constantly saying, in Jesus, listen, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Instead, there's radical unity. Now, what Paul is not saying is that in this unity, there's this squashing of personal identity, right? The New Testament Testament church is not a a cookie-cutter, disciple-manufacturing organization that just takes everyone, smashes us into some crazy amalgamation, and produces something that looks the same in every single person. That's not true. Instead, the New Testament church takes radical diversity and actually are joined together because they found something greater than what used to define them. Wow. It's an identity issue, Pastor Adam? You better believe it. It's always an identity issue, isn't it? So for the New Testament church to have unity, that meant that the person who was working in the Roman administration had to say, while this used to be the thing that really identified me, actually the new thing that identifies me more is Jesus and my submission to the rule of God. 
the rich person had to say, well, you used to identify me with my status in the community because of my wealth, now has to say what identifies me most is my status in Christ and vice versa. Do you see it? That unity is only accomplished when we find a higher identity that actually aligns us. It can't be lesser because we will always move to the bigger thing. And it has to align us. We can't force ourselves into some kind of cooked up community. This is how it works for the early church. And they find it. Now you can find all kinds of examples of how they lived this sort of thing out, but let me just give you two for, la- for space and time this morning. Now, one of the ways that they lived this out uh, comes from Paul's writing in Romans. Romans chapter 15, I think. We've got it up on the screen here. He says, Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to... Mu- 14, right? Let us lead to every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification, Right? So now he's saying, hey, how do you live your life on the basis of this identity in Christ, which is the ultimate thing? Well, you then make decisions on the basis of that identity identity that lead to peace and mutual edification. Now, in the context of Romans chapter 14, the context is freedom, right? Paul's saying, listen, under the gospel, Jesus has set us free from arbitrary rules, and there's lots of things that the Bible does not speak directly to, right? You can't go to chapter and verse that says, uh, what time should I go to bed at night? Or what kind of music do I listen to? Or how clean do I want these things? These are all questions from Jackson's dorm roommate uh, survey, right? To try to figure out how can we mesh people together, right? We, there's no rules for these things. How do we find them? How do you find unity? Well, you try to understand and think not only of yourself, but others that says, how do I look in this situation and what it would bring peace and what ultimately would bring edification, that is the building up or the nourishing of someone else, not me. Now, can you imagine that, right? COVID, sorry if I touch a nerve here. I hope that you love me and know that I love you. COVID, one of the major players in the whole COVID thing was not the higher identity of Jesus that brings us all together. It was my personal rights, wasn't it? And so it happened this way. I'm going to talk on both sides so you know that I'm not speaking one to the other. My personal rights is I'm not wearing a mask. Don't tell me to wear a mask. In fact, I'm leaving the church if you tell me to wear a mask. Well, you tell me. What's the ultimate identity of a person like that? Then on the other side, well, if you don't wear a mask, you don't care about me, right? You only think of wait a minute, both of those sides are someone sitting on the throne of their own existence, are they not? Neither of those things are trying to think about the greater good. And what would it mean if we actually had a community that processed decisions through a greater identity? That said, you know what? (laughs) That's right, there is no chapter and verse on whether or not you should wear a mask if a global pandemic breaks out in 2020. just isn't, right? I spent a lot, a lot of time looking for it so I could make the right decision as the leader of this church. It's not there. So we are left to this crazy area that's called freedom. Are you right if you don't wear a mask? Yeah, could be. Are you right if you do wear a mask? Could be. But ultimately, what is the right thing? That we care for each other. You see it? that we process this communally, and that we think 
of each other, and that we actually make decisions in light of that. Imagine that. Fascinating. And then there's this second verse that comes from uh, 2 Timothy. And here Paul's writing to a pastor, but he gives them really important advice that's important for us too. He says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, right? Faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. He goes on. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Now, notice what he doesn't say here. He does not say, don't have any opinion on lesser things. That's not what he's saying. He says, avoid foolish and stupid arguments about secondary and lesser things because all they do is break unity. Listen. God never intended to have a monolithic church, neither do we. He did not want to have everyone programmed to see the world exactly the same because we would not manifest the true glory and beauty of who he is to the world if we live like that. We need diversity. And so part of embracing diversity is saying there are certain things that we have to have hard conversations about There are other things where we avoid quarreling about because they're not important. Does it make sense? The fruit of the spirit of peace looks like these things. Do you see it? And you say, well, it doesn't look like more than that. Yeah, way more than that. But here are a couple of examples for you. So, then the natural question is, if that's what peace looks like, what keeps us from it? What keeps us from peace? Now, I haven't had time to fully work this through, so I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to give you a working hypothesis. But if you go home and prove me wrong, I've just, I've just hedged my bets, right? I'm okay. If it's <laughs> but I think, I believe that the opposite of peace is injustice. The opposite of peace is injustice. You say, well, that's odd. How, where's that come from? Well, If you read every instance of peace in the New Testament, like I did this week, you will find that almost all, if not all, are couched in bigger discussions of justice. What is right and what is wrong, and who gets to decide? (laughs) And in fact, isn't it true that wherever injustice exists, big or small, there is no peace? Now, when we hear the word injustice, we immediately go to big issues in our world. And your mind should go there. Issues like racism and misogyny and sexism, xenophobia, uh, all these different things. And I'm not suggesting anyone is, is you know, given to those things, but that's where our mind goes. And immediately when our mind goes there, we, then we immediately go, what? Well, I don't do that stuff, <laughs> right? Of course, I'm not someone who acts in injustice. But the Bible would have a much more penetrating definition of injustice, wouldn't it? And the Bible would would define injustice as any mistreatment of someone else for personal gain. That's injustice, according to the Bible. Any mistreatment of someone else for personal gain that is lessening the dignity of someone else so that your dignity might stand above theirs. Do you see it? And now, if you're honest, you say to yourself, "Uh uh-oh, I do that all the time. Now, perhaps you're far greater than me, and 
I believe that would be true for most of you. But when I've wrestled through this this week, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, my life is riddled with injustice. And when I say that, I don't mean injustice towards me. I mean injustice that I've brought on others. Where does it come from? Well, we've said through this whole series, bad fruit doesn't grow in a vacuum. It doesn't just poop, pop up out of nowhere. Oh my goodness, there it is. Let's get rid of it. It grows from our flesh, right? The flesh and the spirit are in conflict with each other. We have these two trees growing in us. In the same way that the fruit of the, the tree of the spirit produces a singular fruit of love, the, the tree of the flesh produces a singular fruit of pride. And one of the manifestations, one of the experiences of love is being a peacemaker or offering peace to the world. In the same way, one of the manifestations of pride is offering injustice to the world, is it not? On one tree, our identity comes from submission to God, letting God rule, spirit tree. On the other tree, our identity comes from submission to ourselves. We're in charge. I'm running this show. And so injustice, big, medium, or small, is always the enemy of peace. It robs us of peace. We have had injustice done to us. It robs us of peace, doesn't it? And oh, by the way, we have robbed others of peace by being perpetrators of micro injustices. So then the final question becomes, okay, how do we stop that? And how do we do the right, how do we do the good thing and stop doing the bad things, right? And I'll remind you as we jump into this for five minutes, that this is a long process that is fought moment by moment. You will not go home and this week conquer injustice in your life and suddenly become a great promoter of peace. But you can cooperate with the transformation that the Spirit is already doing in your life if you're a follower of Jesus. Here's how it works. You work the tree paradigm, right? So bad fruit doesn't come from nowhere, right? What are you seeing in your life? Take an honest assessment of your life. If you have time in, this, in these next 15 seconds to do it, great, but I would suggest go home this week and think it through. What kind of fruit are you seeing in your life? Are you seeing some manifestations of the fruit of peace in your life? I hope that you are, and I bet that you are. Well, stop and praise God for that. You didn't do that. The Spirit did that. Give God the praise He deserves for that. But are you also seeing a lack of peace that you're offering to people? My, my guess is yes, you are. And, oh, by the way, are you seeing some injustice if we're looking at it critically? I bet you are. So then you stop to stop and ask yourself, okay, this doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from an identity that I've embraced. An identity that we could very easily call self-rule. <laughs> I'm in charge. How does injustice ever happen in this world? Because men and women have assumed authority. And once we do that, and we're producing pride, we're always going to rig it for our own gain. Even the best of us. We're corrupt. We're broken to every level. But then you have to go further. Why have I embraced this position of self-rule, this posture, this identity of self-rule? What am I actually believing that leads to it? 
Well, you're believing several different things probably, and, many, and for each of us it could be different, but you're believing some wrong things about God that have caused you to hold that. Either you're saying, I'm not sure that God's actually good, so I'm not going to let him rule. I'm going to take the authority in my life, right? Or you're believing stuff about yourself, right? Well, I'm a good person. I love people. I'll do a good job at this. Right? We have wrong beliefs about ourselves and wrong beliefs about God that merge together to produce a wrong identity. But it's only in those beliefs where the gospel actually becomes effective. Do you see it? Because once we start admitting these things, we would never admit them publicly, and we would never acknowledge without actually analyzing ourselves that this is going on. But once you say them out loud, you start to think, oh, that's ugly. <laughs> right? And then you start to think, well, wait a minute. How has God treated me? If anyone deserves to be wrongly treated, it's me by God. I've disowned him. I've run away from him. I've rebelled against him. I've told him, you're not good enough or I'm going to do my own thing. Right? And yet, God has run after me. And what has he constantly offered me? Peace. Right? I mean, there's no more prolific offer of peace than God. And he's widely known for offering peace to the greatest of rebels. This is who God is. This is the gospel. That God so loved you and me, rebels, that he sent his only son, Jesus. The perfect picture of who God is. Why? So that there could be peace once again between God and man that ultimately leads to peace throughout creation, new creation. This is what the gospel is. And you start to think, okay, if I believe that, right, not just ascribe to it intellectually, but if I actually believe it actively, who am I? Who am I? Well, I'm not in charge, right? That's not my identity anymore. I'm not the one in charge. God, God, God gets to do that. And I can trust him to do that. So I once again begin to take the identity of a worshiper of God or a servant of God or I want to give you an identity that's even more powerful than this. Can we go back to the Matthew chapter 5 passage on the screen? What does Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for I will give them an identity. What is it? Children of God. You know who picks up on this the most in the New Testament? Unsurprisingly? Paul. What is one of the major doctrines that Paul's talking about all through the New Testament? It's what he calls adoption. Right? What is peace realized? Adoption. If you embrace the identity of an adopted son or daughter of God, you are embracing peace. But if you're embracing that identity, you're taking on a whole new reality for your life, aren't you? Because you're stepping out of a family of origin that has lived life a certain way, with me in charge, or mom in charge, or a patriarch in charge, or some other God in charge that we've given ourselves to. And you step now into a whole new family that says, God's in charge now, and I'm going to live my life this way, and I'm going to embrace this whole new culture. And oh, by the way, God doesn't just adopt one person, right? You're not an only child in this new family. He's adopted millions upon billions of people, has he not? 
So we're all different, all stepping out of all kinds of different families. And so we're embracing this thing together. And as you embrace it together thoughtfully, the Holy Spirit is beginning to tap you on the shoulder and say words like this. What if you took a risk? What if you took a jump? Oh, he doesn't use words like that, right? Because we don't find those in the Bible. Risk and jump, they're not in our Bible. Do you know what the theological word for those are? Faith, right? Okay, God, I trust that you're good. Here I go. And what's the risk? I'm going to promote unity in the church. I'm going to go be a peacemaker in the world. Not a peacekeeper, peacemaker in the world. Is it going to go swimmingly? Probably not. Why would you do it? It's who I am. I can do no other. And as you begin to take these steps of faith and cooperate with the Spirit, you are throwing water and fertilizer on the Spirit tree, and it is growing. And at the same time, you are laying axe head to the tree of the flesh that is producing pride that looks like injustice. And all of a sudden, you have embraced your rightful place, not only as new creation, that's who you are, but as an ambassador of new creation to the rest of creation that the Bible said is desperate to know it. Peace is more than a feeling, right? It's a fruit. It's a fruit that is cosmic in scope. And it's the fruit that God has always intended humanity to bear. But our only hope, not only to experience peace in this life, but to be people of peace in this world, is if we truly grasp the peace that only God can offer through Jesus. If that is not settled, then you will only breed chaos in the rest of your life. But if it is settled, you'll begin to manifest this fruit to the world. Can I pray with you?